Welcome to the Statesman Journal's Explore Oregon podcast. I'm your host, Zach Ernest, and in each episode, we highlight Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places. This podcast is brought to you by the American Forest Resource Council, supporting responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest. Learn more at amforest.org. We're also supported by Visit Tillamook Coast, a land of ocean and forest just an hour from the Willamette Valley, that this winter is stressing the importance of being aware of king tides that'll hit Oregon's coastal beaches this January. The tides can be extremely dangerous and require extra caution from visitors. We'll talk more about king tides just a little bit later in the show. Finally, the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department invites Oregonians to explore parks during winter and spring to experience the beauty of those seasons. If you're camping, remember to buy firewood from the park or nearby community to avoid bringing invasive species such as the devastating emerald ash borer into parks. Learn more about protecting Oregon's ash trees at stateparks.oregon.gov. All right, in today's episode, we're talking about the momentum to reintroduce sea otters to the Oregon coast. We'll be talking with a group that says the move could bring big benefits to the long-term health of our marine ecosystem. But first, here's some guitar music to get us rolling. All right, in today's episode, we're talking about an effort to reintroduce sea otters to the Oregon coast. And I'll be honest, until recently, I had no idea Oregon didn't have sea otters because, look, you can go to the Newport Aquarium and see them, and there's names with places like Otter Rock. So it almost seems like they're here, but in terms of actual wild sea otter populations, that is not the case. That could change in the coming years. There's a growing momentum to bring the fuzzy marine mammals back to the Oregon coast. This summer, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service released a study saying the idea was feasible, and this past week, the Center for Biological Diversity filed a petition aimed at speeding the process along. But when it comes to sea otter reintroduction, there has been one group advocating for the idea for a number of years, and that is the Alaka Alliance. The group, which has been around since 2017, has studied and touts the benefits of returning sea otters to Oregon's nearshore marine environment. Today, I'm joined by Chanel Hazen. Director of Outreach and Community Relations for the Alaka Alliance. Hi, Chanel. Thanks for being here. Hi, Zach. Thanks for having me. I can talk for hours about sea otters, so I'm glad and I'm eager to talk to you today about the Alaka Alliance. All right. So as I mentioned in the introduction, I wasn't actually aware Oregon didn't have sea otters just because it feels like they should be here and they have been here historically. Why don't we start about talking about where wild sea otters are and where they aren't compared to their native range. So where are they now and where should they be historically? Sure. Yeah, I agree with you. About 90% of the people I interact with um, talking about sea otters in Oregon don't even know that they're not here. So it's not uncommon to have that thought process. Uh, but currently, 
there are southern sea otter species and northern sea otter species. So in California, we've got the southern sea otter species that are found along the California central coast from San Mateo County in the north to near Santa Barbara in the south. And moving up the coast, there's an 800 mile gap where sea otters used to inhabit from northern California up to Washington, uh, where there's currently no populations. So in northern Washington, you can find a population of northern sea otters, and that range extends north through British Columbia and Alaska. And then going across the Pacific Rim, there are Russian sea otters, which are obviously found in Russia and off of Japan as well. Uh, historically, sea otters occupied nearshore marine waters ranging from the North Pacific Rim, from the northern islands of Japan to the Aleutian Islands and southward down the Pacific coast all the way to Baja, Mexico. Um, so in the early 1700s, the population worldwide was estimated to be 150,000 to 300,000 individuals. Gotcha. So in Oregon, you know, in that pre 1700s time period, would Oregon have been just populated up and down with sea otters? Would they have been pretty much everywhere you looked on the coast or more in some areas and less in others? Yeah, so the majority of the kelp forests we have in Oregon are on the southern coast. That's where the rocky reefs are. So, so the majority of their habitat would most likely have been on the southern Oregon coastline. Well, we'll get into the backstory of how and why sea otters were eliminated in Oregon, uh, along with previous efforts to reestablish them. But your group has been at the forefront of trying to bring them back to Oregon. And I know this could be a long answer, but in a nutshell, why are sea otters so important for Oregon's marine ecosystem? Like, why is your group and others so focused on this as a critical move for the Oregon coast? Yeah, for sure. So sea otters play a really important critical ecological role known as a keystone species in the kelp forest ecosystem. And if you're not familiar, a keystone species um, has a disproportionately large effect on its environment relative to its abundance. So uh, just having the presence of that species in that ecosystem uh, is really, really beneficial to making sure that ecosystem is all working properly um, so for more than a century, sea otters have been absent on the Oregon coast. So without their presence, um, another predator, the sunflower sea star, was keeping check on sea urchins, which are a prey for both sea otters and um, these sea stars in the kelp forest and sea urchins like to eat kelp. So the sunflower sea stars were helping keep check on that population of sea urchins. But unfortunately, in 2013 through 2015, there was a marine heat wave called the blob that decimated about 90% of the sunflower sea star population on the West Coast, and they haven't bounced back yet. So that means these sea urchins are being left unchecked without their two key predators in the ecosystem. And so thus, they are eating lots of kelp, and that kelp is not being able to regenerate um, just because those urchins are chowing down that whole kelp forest ecosystem. So it's really horrible and that's happening along the entire West Coast for the most part. So returning sea otters back in that ecosystem could really help rebuild that uh, underwater kelp forest that is so crucial to uh, larvae and keeping um, huge storm waves at bay on our coast. 
Well, sea urchin, it's interesting you mentioned sea urchins because I've been out to the coast a handful of times and it's really interesting. You can just see, I mean, even in really niche near shore environments, you can see the explosion of sea urchins. They they are everywhere. So I guess what you're saying is sea otters, you know, that's a big part of their diet. And without them there, they've just been allowed to explode. I mean, is that a are sea urchins a major part of sea otters diet? Yeah, so sea otters eat a lot of invertebrates, so hard-shelled creatures like sea urchins, clams, crabs, mussels. Um, and so they don't specifically just eat urchins alone. Uh, it's part of their diet. And actually sea otters, uh, each one has an individual preference of food that they like. So there's not, you know, a determining genetic factor of what they eat more or less of. It's basically what their mom teaches them. You know, if your mom gives you PB and J's every day when you're a kid, you probably will like them when you're an adult. So uh, sea otter moms, if one of them is really good at getting sea urchins, they'll teach their pups that, and those pups will be really good at urchins, and some might be really great at getting mussels. So, but yes, they do love sea urchins as one of their food preferences. Okay. And so, you know, eating the, the sea urchins that are impacting or having a really negative impact on the kelp forest, that's that's a big one. I've, I've heard that one a lot. I've also heard from Fish and Wildlife and other studies that they could help mitigate some of the impacts of climate change. So how would that work and, and what other things would sea otters bring to the Oregon coast? Sure. So a lot of times you'll see on news headlines that sea otters are known as climate change warriors, which has a nice ring to them um, because they're thorough with their protection of kelp forests and sea grasses. So the absence of sea otters, along with sea star wasting syndrome that I touched upon earlier, um, are the primary causes of the overpopulation of sea urchins. Um, so kelp forests, like terrestrial forests, absorb a large amount of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And unlike those land forests, kelp grow incredibly fast, up to two feet per day, and in doing so can absorb and remove carbon from the atmosphere. So a healthy, intact kelp forest can absorb up to 20 times more carbon per acre than forests on land. So it's really important that we also try and protect our underwater forests just as much as our land forests, even though we might not actually be able to go dive and enjoy that kelp forest ecosystem. It's just as crucial or even more crucial to protect um, and rebuild that ecosystem over land forests. Now, this might be kind of an odd question, but if there were sea otters on the Oregon coast, as there were historically, you know, where would we see them and how would they kind of fit into that tapestry of animals that we're familiar with, like sea lions and seabirds, clams, fish and everything else? Like, would they be a kind of a visible and dynamic animals out there like sea lions, I guess, or would they be harder to spot? I guess I'm trying to try to visualize it um, if it came to fruition. Yeah, so we uh, we wouldn't be the deciding factor on where sea otters would be placed. That would be in the hands of U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. But uh, we published our own feasibility study on sea otter reintroduction in Oregon in um, 
January of 2022, and that can be found on our website, alakalliance.org, and it's written by the top six sea otter scientists basically in the world. Um, and it was deemed feasible to reintroduce them, and we did pinpoint some locations, and they're mostly on the southern Oregon coastline um, because, once again, that is where our rocky reefs and our kelp forests like to grow. But it kind of depends on which spots U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service picks to be able to tell you if you could see them from shore, maybe with some binoculars, or if they're going to be too far off of shore that you wouldn't be able to spot them as easily. Mm -hmm. Well, I've heard that they occasionally come down the Oregon coast. I think I was, I was talking to a scientist with uh, Fish and Wildlife, and she said that occasionally sea otters will show up. And when they do, it's like a, a sensation and people hear about it and they want to come out and see them. Um, so, I mean, is there, can you see like in the same way people go to like sea, uh, sea lion caves and places like that, that people would want to come out to the coast and, you know, try to spot sea otters through those binoculars, like they look for whales and other animals? Oh, gosh, yeah, this can be a huge ecotourism boom for the Oregon coastal economy. Uh, if you've ever been to Monterey Bay, where there's sea otters right off of shore in their kelp forest, that's mainly their huge drive of tourism is to be able to see that wildlife so closely. And it was in 2021, November, where there was a young male um, sea otter that swam down from the Washington population. Uh, and that does happen occasionally. They're usually young juvenile males that come down from the Washington population looking for some more females to procreate. Uh, unfortunately, when they get down here, they find out we don't have any. So uh, <laughs> unfortunately, uh, their dreams are diminished. Um, and so unfortunately, that's what happened to the one that was uh, in Yaquina Head for about three weeks at the end of 2021. And uh, literally, thousands of people came from all over the state and even out of state just to see that one sea otter. So I think that goes to show you like such a glimmer of hope for our future. Once we get sea otters back in our water, that people will come and enjoy this beautiful marine mammal that is super important for our kelp forest ecosystems. And it doesn't hurt that they're, you know, super cute as well, but they play <laughs> such, <laughs> such a big role uh, as a keystone species. So it would be really fantastic to be able to see them in our lifetime. Returning to your group a little bit, the Alaka Alliance, you know, when did you guys form and what, what brought together this common goal for reintroducing sea otters that is, you know, now picking up steam? Like what was the, what was the driving force of saying, hey, this is our thing. This is what we're going to do. Yeah. So uh, the idea came around in 2016, kind of informally from the late David Hatch, who was a member of the Siletz tribe. And he was actually building a boat with his son, Peter, and was trying to figure out a name for the boat and came across the word Alaka in a Chinook jargon dictionary. And he's like, huh, there's a word for sea otter. Where are sea otters? Why aren't there sea otters on the Oregon coast? And so he started talking to researchers and scientists and educators to try and figure out what happened to them. How can we bring them back? And he was super passionate. Um, and unfortunately, he passed away um, several years ago. But his mission and drive to bring sea otters back remains very much alive. Um, and so we were technically formed in 2018. 
um, by tribal nonprofit and conservation leaders with the same shared belief to have an Oregon coast 50 years from now where our children and grandchildren can coexist uh, with a thriving sea otter population to create a more robust and resilient marine ecosystem. Well, I wanted to, to press you a little bit on uh, the timeline for this actually happening, because, you know, when I reported on this last summer, the Fish and Wildlife Service said, you know, if they decided to go forward with it, you know, maybe four to five years at best, you know, before reintroducing getting otters in the water. And but there still wasn't, you know, that hard commitment. Uh, the Center for Biological Diversity wants that to happen quicker. And they filed a petition to try and maybe get it in half that time. But what's your feel, your group's feel for how this actually plays out in terms of the things that need to happen to get otters back in the water and kind of the timeline there? Yeah, I think it's safe to say that we're aiming for five to six years based on our progress to date and strategic plan timelines. But this is obviously a collaborative effort with partners. So, of course, there are uncertainties, but that's really our best guesstimate at this moment. Okay. All right. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. When we get back, we'll go back in time a little bit. We'll talk about how sea otters were wiped out and an earlier attempt to reintroduce them and about what we could learn a second time around. So stay with us. I'm Sarah Melton with the American Forest Resource Council. I love the outdoors and exploring the forests near my hometown. My job is to protect our forests and wildlife. I work to defend forest management projects in the courtroom and to support the workers and agencies who steward our forests and public lands. Good forest management based on the best science keeps our forests healthy, improves wildlife habitat, keeps our air and water clean, and gives us the sustainable timber we need for renewable and climate-friendly wood products. AFRC is proud to sponsor the Explore Oregon podcast. Learn more about us at amforest.org. This message is brought to you by Visit Tillamook Coast. The Pacific Ocean's king tides of winter are one of the most impressive sights on the Oregon coast, but they can also be a deadly hazard. Visit Tillamook Coast wants visitors who head out to the beach to be aware of the king tides that are expected to hit coastal areas November 24th through the 26th, December 22nd through the 24th, and January 20th through the 22nd. When king tides hit, it's important for visitors to observe waves from a distance. Normally, when visiting the ocean, the big rule of thumb is don't turn your back on the ocean. In the case of king tides, however, you don't want to go anywhere near the ocean. Three guidelines to focus on include staying off beaches during king tide events, staying off low-lying areas such as jetties or parking areas close to the beach, and staying off cliff and staying off cliffs that can suddenly crumble when hit by powerful waves. For more information on King Tides, visit www.oregonkingtides.net. Once again, www.oregonkingtides, all one word, .net. All right, welcome back. 
So it's my understanding that sea otters were kind of gradually wiped out during that 1700s, 1800s, and then the last known wild sea otter was killed in Oregon in 1906 at Otter Rock, south of Depot Bay. So what made otters a, a popular target for hunters in the in during the fur trade? I feel like we know a lot about the you know beaver pelts you know being used for hats but what was the what was the demand for for sea otter why why were they targeted yeah so the harvest of sea otters and their fur began not long after they were discovered here in the pacific uh northwest by russian explorers in the mid 1700s and by the time protections of the international fur seal treaty were put in place in 1911 fewer than 2000 animals that's about less than 1% of the original global population were left. And that's because sea otters, they have the most, the densest fur out of any animal on the entire planet. It's super soft. I don't know if you've ever got to feel a pelt maybe at an aquarium or zoo, but it is very luxurious. And so people love to turn them into hats and blankets and jackets, unfortunately. And uh, so that's pretty much their demise at that point in time. Yeah. You know, I was watching the Oregon field guide did a, did a good episode on, on sea otters and they kind of talked about how, you know, that most marine mammals have, have blubber to, to keep warm in the water, but sea otters have that really intricate fur where it's almost, I don't even know what to compare it to, but it's, it's like, you know, a, a type of fur that no other animal has, or it's, it's really complex. Like, do you have any more on that? Yeah. I know. I mean, it really is a special, special type of fur. It's actually two layers of fur. So there's an upper and a lower layer. And actually the layer closest to the sea otter never gets wet. So you'll see otters grooming themselves constantly. And that's because they're creating a pocket of air in between those two layers of fur. And that's basically how they keep warm. Um, so without blubber, they're the only marine mammal without blubber. So they had to figure out some way to stay warm. And that's what they figured out is to have, you know, the densest fur ever. The, any Anything that interrupts that fur layer uh, is basically, you know, deadly to them because that's the only way they can keep warm in these chilly waters of the kelp forest. Now, Oregon didn't go entirely without sea otters uh, for over a century, and that's because in 1973, Oregon, along with some of the other sites along the West Coast, uh, attempted reintroduction. So can you talk about that program, uh, how it went, and, and kind of what ultimately happened? Sure. Yeah. So basically, um, the Navy was going to do some bomb testing in the Aleutian Islands, and researchers and scientists were like, oh, what are you going to do about this sea otter population that lives here? And they're like, I don't know, figure it out, basically. Um, obviously, not exactly like that, but uh, researchers and scientists had to work quickly and try and save as many of these sea otters as possible. So um, in the early 1970s, about 100 animals were captured and released at Cape Arago. There was 40 animals released there in 1971, and in Port Orford, 29 animals in 1970 and 24 in 1971. Uh, and the rest uh, were distributed to California and Washington as well. Um, so some animals appear to have left soon after uh, left the area after the release, while others did not. Although there were um, sea otters that did have pups in some places, 
The entire population of the animals declined dramatically by 1975 and disappeared by 1981 for reasons that are still not well understood. Scientists now are assuming that the initial release number of sea otters was not large enough to withstand the initial immigration and mortality to withhold carrying capacity in those locations. Um, so now we have much more research and knowledge about reintroductions. Uh, and Tim Tinker, who is kind of like the godfather of sea otter research, he is the lead author of our feasibility study. He created the Orso model, which you can go on to our website and utilize it and input different places along the Oregon coast and see the probability of success. If you, you know, you can put in 25 female sea otters and 50 male sea otters and see um, the probability of that success in that specific location. So we have a better understanding of the number of animals we would need to be um, reintroduced in a specific area now. So, so I think, uh, moving forward with a reintroduction would look a lot differently than the 1970s, which is very positive. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it sounded like when they first tried this, it was pretty haphazard and there wasn't a good understanding of what they might do, how they might respond. The actual capture and release of them was pretty uh, sloppy, I suppose, by by modern standards. And, you know, when I talked to the biologists with the uh, Fish and Wildlife Service, they said if we did try it again, um, they thought Oregon might have better success because, you know, instead of using older otters with a really strong homing instinct, uh, meaning they just kind of wanted to swim off or swim back home as soon as you mm -hmm. left them, they could use a mix of younger otters or ones raised by surrogate parents in aquariums, along with, you know, a combination of these ones. And there's less of that homing instinct and they might stick around, you know, use the habitat that's good. Is that kind of the best way of understanding it? Like kind of in a nutshell, obviously, it's a pretty complicated thing. Yeah, I mean, they're wild animals, so it's hard to predict anything that's going to happen exactly. But that is true. There is strong um, homing mechanisms for sea otters. Um, and yes, I've also spoken with scientists saying maybe getting some younger ones would be more beneficial. Uh, but it's also hard to know specifically the age of otters when you're looking at a huge raft of them um, to say, I want this one and this one. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, so yes, that is that is one method that could be utilized for reintroduction in Oregon. Uh, and they did hang on, like, like so it wasn't a total failure. Like yeah. some of the reintroduced populations did, you know, uh, did establish and continue to to, to exist. Um, some didn't. And it was kind of, you know, there was mixed success, which is kind of what you expect when you have such a widespread, uh, at, you know, effort like that. Yeah, exactly. And to touch upon the surrogate um, raised pups. Uh, so the Monterey Bay Aquarium um, kind of spearheads the surrogacy program of pups that wash ashore and then get raised by a surrogate mom and then get to be re-released. But that's not a lot of them to, you mm -hmm. know, um, help fill a, a huge introduction of species, um, individuals here in Oregon, but it could be a really incredible way to introduce them over time because those are Southern sea otters and our, uh, our suggestion is to reintroduce Northern sea otters from Alaska 
because as I mentioned, they're very healthy population up there. So taking several hundred from Alaska won't hurt that population. Um, so then that would help with the cross genetic diversity of those two subspecies by introducing those surrogate raised pups over time. All right. So now before we got to that stage of actually reintroducing sea otters, I mean, that's a big thing to do. And, and we studied that pretty in depth. There's definitely a lot of outreach uh, in, in the process. And not everybody is thrilled about the idea is one of the things you mentioned. The, the shellfish industry, including the Dungeness crab industry, which is very important to Oregon, is, is pretty weary because, you know, that's a big part of sea otters diets what what has been your interactions with with the the fishing industry and you know is there common ground to be found or how have you have you gone about that dynamic yeah so we try and have the most open communication with uh the crabbing commission and different um fishing industries along the oregon coastline because we're not here to you know disrupt what they're doing um, we want to make sure that this is a mutually beneficial reintroduction. There are some facts that perhaps people don't understand fully, like sea otters don't hunt or eat finfish uh, for the most part. It's very, very rare that they've been documented to do that. Um, so they won't, you know, take all the rockfish out. They'll actually help rockfish because when uh, kelp forest ecosystems are healthy and thriving, that is a place for juvenile rockfish to grow and thrive. So uh, it would be super beneficial over time for especially the finfish industry. And also, as I mentioned before, sea otters stay put and also only have one pup a year. So um, oftentimes some fish fishermen come to us and say, you know, there's going to be thousands of sea otters along the coast eating all the crab. And that's just a false statement. <laughs> they're, they're not going to repopulate like rabbits. That's just not how uh, they grow and thrive. Um, so that's also something, and they'll probably be reintroduced in different parts uh, of the coastline. So not all, you know, one huge population in one spot. And also a lot of, uh, you know, fishermen talk in that industry. And so there's been some concerns that's happened in Alaska, but Oregon is not Alaska. Um, so you have to look at we're two totally different ecosystems for the most part. And so what happened there is not likely to ever happen in this situation here in Oregon. Okay. Well, we've talked a lot about sea otters today, Chanel. Uh, in this process, what kind of comes next for you guys? You know, we have the study that you produced. There's the study from Fish and Wildlife. There's a petition. There seems to be this momentum. But for your group, what's the next thing that you're targeting? What's the next thing on this road? Yeah, so we're working with our partners, including U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, on actions needed to inform and support the reintroduction of sea otters in Oregon. Uh, and these include right now addressing uncertainties or data gaps identified in the feasibility reports and continuing to raise public awareness and build support for sea otter reintroduction. Um, and so this work will provide a foundation and necessary information that can be used in the NEPA process, uh, which is the next step for U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to conduct and engage in. 
Okay. So in that process, which, you know, is, is required from all big federal projects like that, they would, they would study this in depth. They would come up with different alternatives saying, don't do this to, you know, lots of reintroduction. Like there'll be a range of options. And then that goes out for public comment. So that's a, that's a big progress mm -hmm. or big process. So that would be the next big thing that you guys are, are looking at. Correct. Yeah, so that's uh, led by U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, but we will be part of that public awareness and uh, meetings across the state with stakeholders. Uh, so we're working closely with that. We're also doing our own public outreach and engagement. Um, I'm going to uh, pitch our Oregon Otter Beer Festival, which is coming up on April 15th at OMSI in Portland. It's our second annual event. It's one of our biggest fundraising campaigns and kind of a unique way to engage some people that may not know that there aren't sea otters in Oregon and why it's important to return them for ocean conservation. And what's the name of, what's the name of the, what's the name yeah, of the festival? It's the, the Oregon the Otter, Otter Beer Oregon Otter Beer Festival. All right. Well, I've been chatting sea otters with Chanel Hazen, Director of Outreach and Community Relations for the Alaka Alliance. Thanks so much for taking this time today. Thank you. All right. Well, that was a great conversation with the Alaka Alliance. And if you want to read their studies or get more of their perspective on sea otter reintroduction, you can log on to alakaalliance.org. Now, as we talked about towards the end of the podcast, Oregon's shellfish industry does have serious concerns about reintroducing otters. So in the name of fairness, I wanted to read this statement from the Oregon Dungeness Crab Commission. So here's what they said. They said, sea otters in any true number have never coexisted with the commercial Dungeness crab industry. And in other areas of the Pacific Northwest where reintroduction has taken place, notably in Southeast Alaska, the results have been devastating for fishermen and the industry. Sea otters are voracious eaters, and one of the things they eat is Dungeness crab, which happens to be Oregon's most valuable single species commercial fishery. All of our fisheries are interconnected. Damage to one is damage to all and can have repercussions throughout our coastal communities. It is not too much to ask that any and all risks or concerns be thoroughly studied and addressed beforehand. That is prudent for the fishery's sake, for the community's sake, and for the sake of the otter. All right, well, that's about all the time we have left in today's show. If you liked what you've heard, check out our catalog of more than 60 episodes featuring Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places at statesmanjournal.com explore, along with Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. We'd once again like to thank our sponsors, beginning with the American Forest Resources Council. AFRC supports responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest for our environment, for our economy, and for the future. Learn more at amforest.org. We'd also like to thank Visit Tillamook Coast. If you want to plan a trip out there, you can check out their outdoor recreation map that shows all the places to hike, swim, boat, and camp. You can find that map at tillamookcoast.com slash recreation hyphen map. Once again, that's tillamookcoast.com slash recreation hyphen map. And thanks to the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department, which stresses the importance of recreating responsibly and leaving no trace in Oregon's outdoors. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time for the next edition of the Explore Oregon podcast.